Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. Good Tuesday to our audience worldwide. It is um, July 11. It's actually already July 12 in a part of the world where I think we have decent viewership today. We're here to talk with Andrew McDermott from Mission Value Partners about Japan, about his career, about the money management business and other related topics. Um, we have so much ground to cover and I know Andrew, like me, doesn't like to talk about himself. So I'm going to give a very quick capsule bio. Perhaps, Eric, you could flash the outline so our audience can see all the topics we're going to be covering. Well, I just go over Andrew's bio real quickly. Andrew was born and raised in Tennessee, attended college at a fancy school about 80 miles from here, south. Um, I won't mention it by name. Uh, and then moved over, I think, very courageously over to Japan right after finishing college, worked for an industrial manufacturer, NEC, uh, and then eventually shifted over to J.P. Morgan, where he worked for that firm in both Tokyo and in Hong Kong. And later on in his tenure at JP, um, worked for them when things were high and flying in Silicon Valley towards the end of the 1990s. He then made his way back to Tennessee and joined Southeastern Asset Management in Memphis, uh, where he was a key member of their investment team until starting his own firm um, under really unusual circumstances uh, around 2009, 2010. We call that Mission Value Partners. It's been principally focused on Japanese equities since then. And Andrew, I thought a good way to segue into um, why you became so enamored of Japan as a national economy and eventually ended up focusing your, your formidable investment acumen on Japanese equities was to do, would be to do so through the prism of somebody known to everyone in our audience, which is Warren Buffett. Because as you and I have discussed on multiple occasions in the past, uh, you've had a very interesting set of interactions with Mr. Buffett as they relate to Japan. So with that, with a warm welcome, we're going to go about an hour now, 53 minutes or so left, and I'll have some concluding remarks. Let me turn it over to you to talk about your ongoing, evolving relationship with Mr. Buffett as it relates to Japan. Sure. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I should first make some disclaimers. I, I don't want to suggest or imply in any way that Mr. Buffett's uh, very successful investments in Japan have had anything to do with, with um, the, the phenomenal relationship that, that at least has been phenomenal from my side in terms of learning that I've had. I, mean, I, I think that I was one of many people who contributed to his very long, what I would, you would call, observation phase in Japan, which in his case lasted 50 years before he did anything. Um, and, and I think the insight that I gained, at least for my own personal growth from that, um, is, is far more important than, than anything I contributed to his, his, his success. Um, as far as my interest in Japan, I, I think like you, I've been a Forrest Gump in finance. I did not intend to be even in the investment management business, certainly not in Japan. I didn't want to do that. I, I was a big believer in many of the things that are part of the common narrative about Japan early in my career. Yet I've seen um, over a period of 30 years or so exactly the same 
changes that I think drew Buffett and Berkshire to Japan. And I think if we go to the, there's a slide that we, we shared that um, I think slots in very nicely with what you've been talking about on capital allocation, which is starting out with a policy that is clear, succinct, and appropriate to the individual or institution for which it applies. And in Berkshire's case, and this is from an email that, that he sent me in, in December of 2011. This is just after the earthquake in Japan. Uh, in the midst of the Olympus crisis, the so-called Olympus crisis, which many people don't remember now, but at the time was a reason often cited for investment managers to have zero weighting in Japan. At this point, after 50 years, we got an email from Mr. Buffett um, that sat in our junk mail filter for two weeks. Uh, <laughs> And someone came in and said, are you expecting an email from, Mr. from Warren Buffett? I said, I'm not expecting one, but it's, it's not impossible. We did send him a letter. And in that message was, was this, what you see on the screen. Um, he said, my interest in Japan is primarily in buying a significant business that meets the same standards we have for American purchases. And I would submit that his decision in 2020 to invest what now is the largest percentage of his capital ever invested outside of the U.S. in a collection of six Japanese pu public companies um, is a reflection not of his changing his standards, but rather of more Japanese companies becoming qualifiers at a time when, sadly, um, most U.S. companies are not. Yeah, we looked earlier at, at our preferred OODA loop, right? We observe, we orient, we decide, and we act. And really what you're suggesting, Andrew, is that Mr. Buffett was engaged in, well, it's the most prolonged OODA loop I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, because in your conversations and exchanges with him, it's, it's been basically, as you just said a minute ago, a 50-year process. Not of interacting with you about Japan, but, but about thinking about Japan as he thought about how do I deploy this growing mountain of investable wealth. So why don't you get into the particulars, if you would. What do you think he was looking for? Uh, why did it take him so long? And what's changed with the management and the governance of Japanese companies over really the course of your career that enabled at least six of them to clear the bar for Berkshire? Well, and that's a great question. And it, and it is very personal for me because when I took my first job to invest, kind of join a firm that was going to invest in Japan, um, my boss at the time sponsored a Warren Buffett um, scholarship. And Mr. Buffett came and spoke at that scholarship uh, and the, the announcing of it. And this was before the internet, um, so the only way you could get a copy of this was to see the, the VHS tape of his um, address <laughs> at the University Japan. of Florida. <laughs> Probably made in Japan. And, and this is three months after I've taken this job supposedly to go find companies in Japan, which I really I was completely unqualified to do, other than that I was from Memphis and had family in Japan. So I was willing to fly from Tokyo to Memphis, which no one else wanted to do. So that, that was why I had the job. And three months later, Mr. Buffett says this, and this is, it's on the slide six. Um, he said, my thoughts about Japan. I'm not a macro guy, um, but the, the good part here, there aren't, there are not very many good businesses in Japan. I find very few wonderful businesses in Japan at present. That they may change the culture in some way so that management gets more shareholder responsive over there and stock returns are higher. 
At the present time, you'll find a lot of low return businesses, and that was true even when the Japanese economy was booming. It's amazing. They had an incredible market without incredible companies. You can imagine how I felt when my boss shared this <laughs> summary from his hero and mine. I was like, oh gosh, I can't, I'm surprised he didn't fire me. He probably should have. Because even from 1998, there was a long period before Mr. Buffett did anything. Um, and yet, as we saw in the earlier note, he has. And if you fast forward to 2021, um, this is what he wrote. He said, our investing approach in Japan, this is after he's, he's invested in these, these, these public companies in Japan, is to be completely passive, but to respond to any ideas initiated by the five companies in which we've invested. They've all reached out, and my guess is that over the years, something will materialize. We want it clear that we're investors only, and have not committed our funds to Japan with the idea of telling their government, their investors, their people, or the CEOs of their investees want to do, what to do. I hope over time to build a trust and a solid relationship so that when a Japanese company is looking to do something and is open to an investor from outside Japan, they think of virtue. And I want to contrast the experience there, which was, you know, and I can say that, that in the few interactions we've had with, with Mr. Buffett about Japan, he has always been informed at the particular company level in a way that um, considering the assets he oversees is, is, is astounding. And it shows that uh, you know, when you clear the deck and think about capital allocation, a lot of the decisions you make are negative. And, and when we walked out of the office and said, let's say we find something to do, who should we call? And this was 9 o'clock in the morning in Omaha, and there was no one else in the office. And he said, look around here. You see anybody else? You call me, I'll give you an answer in 48 hours. The reason he could do that was he wasn't doing a lot of other stuff. He was just looking for companies that qualify. And, and I think if you, if you look ahead at some of the numbers that you have shown in your prior, um, prior messages or, or prior um, Hedgeye um, presentations, number nine, for example, the salaryman versus the, the superstar CEO, if you can, you can show that chart, this is what, um, I don't know if there it is. This is what Mr. Buffett saw, and it's just the numbers changed. And the numbers changed because the emphasis of the companies changed. And that happened in a way that was incredibly value creative, incredibly cash flow creative. Um, and you, you see Japanese profits on flat earnings have increased 11 times since 1995. Relative to the U.S., it's six, uh, three times on a six, uh, six times profit increase on a three times revenue increase. Um, and the valuations are down. So uh, Mr. Buffett had a clear investment allocation policy, and he just waited until the fat pitch came. Mm -hmm. And he did not let distractions get in the way. He did not let what other people thought get in the way. At his annual meeting, he talked about how he made the first billion dollar investment without even telling his team. And I, I learned so much from that about how we do or how we, how we tend to mess things up by, by complicating things, and, and that's not what he did. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, The Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study. Measuring and mapping, 
time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe. So let's um, drill down a little bit on that. I also want to talk about the Intel experience that's on the outline and how it relates to the capital allocation challenges that we're exploring here. Um, But Buffett's um, allocation of capital, his deployment of capital in Japan has been highly selective. I mean, at this point, if I'm not mistaken, there are just six stocks on his balance sheet from a universe of stocks in Japan that's actually larger than our own, right. which I'd like to have you speak to. And you've always been highly selective, too. You're not just investing in a basket of, uh, in, in a cap-weighted index of Japanese stocks or, God forbid, as I talked about right from this room yesterday morning with Keith, the Nikkei 225, which is price-weighted. Right, so your largest stock in that index today is fast retailing, which is a what we call a best idea short here in our retailing group at, at Hedgeye. Number two is SoftBank. And we all know about SoftBank's travails, its triumphs and its failures too. But let's talk about both the criteria that you use in looking and deciding where to deploy capital, how they might compare and contrast with what you think Buffett is himself using. And maybe more importantly for the audience, Andrew, in the process of doing that, how has sort of some elements of corporate Japan, what used to be called Japan Inc., evolved over time so that individual companies, as we said a few minutes ago, are now clearing your bar as well as Berkshire. Yes, and I, re- I want to emphasize this is, this is not investment advice. I'd, re- I'd much rather talk about what other people do. And, uh, and I think that, but I do think there's some, um, there's a lot we can learn from from what Buffett has done and, and also what he hasn't done. I mean, he, he has been very clear that in most cases the index is the best way to go. Um, one of my favorite things you talk about is how every generalization is not mm-hmm. <laughs> always applicable. <laughs> and I think Buffett is the best at not taking his own advice. He was very clear when we first met that he said, the one thing I do not want to do is buy publicly listed companies in Japan. I only want to buy entire companies and yet that's what he did. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to talk to the media about what we're doing. And yet, four months ago, that's what he did. And yeah. I, I think that that's not because he is vacillating. Rather, it's because he's got, he, he does not mistake means and ends. And he's looking at the, the long term. And in, his, in this particular case, he found um, what I think many other people find when they actually take the trouble to get past the narrative and look at individual companies is that underneath the hood of that enormous increase in aggregate profit, there are a tremendous variety in, of, of company strategies, of company views towards capital allocation, of balance sheets, of businesses in transition, much more so than the U.S., where I find that um, because everyone has gone to business school and everyone subscribes to this efficiency-first optimized financialization, you get much less um, dispersion within companies. Mm -hmm. And you get much less, um, you get fewer Easter eggs. I think one of the things that's interesting about Mr. Buffett's choice, and it was his choice, is that the the optionality that's embedded in the 
the t decisions that he made it. And there's so many examples like that in, in Japan. Um, you know, he, he bought things, of course they were cheap, but they also had strategic opportunities for Berkshire itself. They were a play on commodities, and they were a play on capital allocation within the companies. And I think if you look with, within the individual trading companies, a change that has been catalyzed in many ways by a, a drive by the stock exchange to let Japan catch up in valuation terms with the rest of the world. And, and that's been widely documented. There's a, a push to get companies that are trading at less than book value above that. And the companies have responded across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, record amounts of share buybacks and, and, and repurchases and, and dividends. So that you see that in a lot of different sectors. And I, I would say Japan's particularly rewarding to individual research in a way other mar markets aren't. Let's do a little, a, a little bit of a sidebar, a little history lesson from you, because I know you're an ex expert in this, and you live through it. And the, the topic I want to explore in the sidebar is cross-holdings. Yeah. It actually came up in a conversation I had with our director of research, Daryl Jones, in this room on June 5th, where I sort of presented a, an abridged version of our evolving case for why you might want to deploy capital in Japanese equities. And I mentioned cross-holdings, and I said, you know, a lot of what we see in the vast compression of valuation multiples in Japan since the peak in 1990 against the background, as we showed, of basically flat revenue and soaring profits in recent years, that's been coupled, the, the compression in valuations has been accompanied by, and in an important sense, I would argue, caused by an unwinding of cross-holdings. Walk people, take a few minutes to walk them through the history of cross-holdings in Japan. Where were we when you first arrived there as a recent graduate from college? And where are we today? And why does it matter? Well, uh, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm rudely looking down at my sheet because our friend, our mutual friend Jesper Cole has a terrific slide on this. And I don't see it here. You may have seen it. I think you may have shown it in other, other decks. But, but what we could look at... Um, while we talk about this is, is slide 11, profits up, valuation down. Um, cross holdings were investments by Japanese companies in their, their suppliers or customers. So it would be like, um, I don't know, Boeing buying shares in United Airlines in order to secure business sales. I mean, that was the original idea. As the Japanese bubble inflated, it became popular for um, particularly the banks to buy large stakes in their customers and then to use that as a justification for their valuation. They would, the companies believed that and Wall Street believed it. And it has always been my contention that the secret to Japan is there's no secret. The managers are very responsive to shareholders. It's just that 25, 30 years ago when over 60% of their shareholders were their customers. It was very logical for them to do things that were in the interest of customers, not necessarily in the interest of shareholders who only had a financial interest in the, in the company itself. So for example, uh, I remember meeting a Toyota subsidiary had, who had built a semiconductor plant. And I said, well, why were you doing that? And they said, well, Sony said it was a good idea. And they were cross holdings. And it, it, that made sense in, in, a, in, a, in a twisted way. That number, that 60% number, is now 5% today. And so as you look at that, the yellow line on this chart, which is the earnings per share, 
there is an almost direct correlation between the focus on earnings and the decline in cross holdings. And you saw it first maybe 15 years ago at the small cap level because the first companies that were, at, at, it became obvious to the managers in Japanese companies that as a matter of survival, they could no longer continue to focus exclusively on revenues and market share. They had to move up the quality chain in terms of products and they had to move up the profit chain in order to, to continue to, um, to compete. Therefore, they started to sell these cross holdings and the first companies they would sell would be the small cap companies and that's where you saw this focus on returned first. And that has now permeated the entire market. So when what Buffett saw when he came in was a domestic shareholder base that was much more aligned with the interest of Berkshire Hathaway. And I would contrast that with the foreign shareholder base that tends to trade Japan. We, we hear a lot about foreign shareholder investment and that has certainly driven price over the last 30 years because it's been in the context of a steadily increasing amount of supply from, of cross holdings. That has now stopped. Um, if anything, Japan Inc., if you will, and I, I hate that term, is a, is a buyer. They're a buyer at the company level through buybacks. They're a buyer at the pension level through increasing their allocation to Japanese stocks. Um, and that's what Berkshire saw. He's, he's, that, that headwind has turned into a, an enormous tailwind. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think, is one of the reasons that, that you're seeing these reforms in the stock exchange index, because we're now purely driven by investors, not by customers. And we should just note that the, 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 both the size and the character of buybacks in Japan, I think one could argue, need to be distinguished from what we have seen in the United States. Maybe they'll be diminished moving forward, which is to say a lot of the buyback activity here was to offset share issuance as a result of options and RSU programs, which you don't tend to see in Japan, if at all. Well, and that's, that's <clears throat> true, and I, I think if you, if you look at the slide 29, 28, cash versus debt, you'll see that. Uh, the Japanese companies are taking cash that they have built up through two or three decades of restructuring during a deflationary environment when it actually made sense to hold cash. And they're using that cash to buy back their own shares on a net basis. There's no net issuance. And they're buying back their own shares often at a single digit PE net of this cash. So in other words, they're getting a 10, 11, 12% earnings yield yeah. on that cash. Sure. That's very different from what's happening in the US where buybacks have been twisted into a form of executive compensation that is not properly accounted for, in my opinion. Um, and one of the largest companies in Japan, one that we followed for years, they announced, I, I, I like this story because they announced their first buyback in, in 15 years. And they said, we have spent 15 years reforming, we now have enough cash and we're going to start buyback our shares. And at the time, their PE was 10 or 11 times. On exactly the same day, J.P. Morgan announced that they were going to stop all buybacks because <laughs> they had used so much capital at higher prices. And of course, the worst, most tragic example of this is General Electric, mm -hmm. Boeing, even Intel until prior current management. They've all followed this path of financial engineering that has made buybacks in many ways a bad word. That's not the case in Japan right now. 
Yeah, uh, I can call it a sidebar, but I think it's actually on the main thread. Let's turn to nuclear power and, and, and Japan's energy sources, because every, I think everybody in our audience knows that, that Japan, like other developed economies, has to think continuously about sources of energy supply on the margin. So Japan's history with nuclear, I won't go back to World War II, we're all aware of that tragedy, but um, if we go back to Fukushima, and we note the fact that Japan is about 5% reliant on nuclear power today versus 63% in France, 8% yeah. here. Talk to us a bit about that path. The catalyst for my asking you to turn to nuclear was your mentioning of GE, because I think it's going to be regarded as one of the great tragedies, frankly, of the late 20th and the early 21st century that, that we gave up whatever edge we had in nuclear power not just generation, but design and manufacture of the facilities that would be needed. And I think we're going to be increasingly, this is my own opinion, which yeah. I'm labeling as such, but um, very, very reliant on Japanese know-how and technology. The paradox being that they've had the most recent serious accident being Fukushima. Yes. Uh, you know, I suppose a recurring theme in my work is that it's just this inversion that... Um, we often talk about the lost decades in Japan, and the implication is that we've had these terrific decades in the U.S., and certainly if you look at the stock market, that's true. But if you look in so many other metrics, um, it's sadly the U.S. That's, that's lost these decades, and Japan that has in many ways regained them, and, and power is, is an obvious one. Um, just this is apocryphal, but I gave a talk last year in, in New York, and one of the other speakers had a relative who had been in the GE nuclear power program, and he came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Jack Welch wanted to get out of nuclear power his entire career, and he tried to sell it and to shut it down. And in fact, he did sell back a significant portion of the Japan joint venture, which GE had. Uh, fortunately for us in the United States, Japan has never stopped innovating. They've never stopped having uh, training um, nuclear engineers. They've never stopped re refining their own uranium, which, as many of you know, the U.S. doesn't do. We, we don't rely on Russia. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the advances in nuclear power, whether it's cold fusion, whether it's small format reactors, uh, it is Japanese technology that underlies a lot of that work. Um, and of course it's by necessity. You mentioned 5% of Japan's power grid now is from nuclear. That of course is up from zero in 2011. But Japan took the opposite tack of Germany. Germany shut everything down. Japan kept investing. And they are now on track to have that number go from 5% to 30% in Japan. But they're also the leading provider of a lot of what hopefully will be a nuclear renaissance in the rest of the world. Let's um, stay in that region and let's talk about China. I, I, I know with certainty because we've discussed it at length, you have some very interesting views about, um, as I put in the outline, uh, China's evolving role in global affairs. Um, the extent to which it's attracted capital from outside China, really over the course of your entire career, Andrew. Yeah. Where we are today with China, my opinion, as you know well, and others in the audience do too, is that China is becoming increasingly uninvestable. But that's a very, very recent phenomenon. And, and, a, and an enormous amount of capital, both human and financial, has flowed toward China. 
And the reason we're discussing China yeah. today is not only because of its massive looming presence in, in global affairs, but because in many important ways, Japan has been the victim of that shift of both human and financial capital and sort of mental bandwidth over the course of your career and mine away from Japan, certainly from the peak in 1990, and toward principally towards China. Well, maybe we can move to slide 20, the China factor. Um, and I'm going to pick a little bit on our, our, our mutual friend, Frank Broshin. Not his, his fault, but he happens to be quoted in the, in the Financial Times in this chart here. And this is, this is in April of 23. And he says, you know, to some extent, investors are realizing that China is investable again. And, and that was quoted in the Financial Times in a, on the very same day that if you look down on the bottom right of this, this, this slide, you see the headline, China launches military drill, drills around Taiwan. Um, you know, this, this same dynamic was at play in Berkshire's annual meeting, where he was very clear on, and we can go back to, I think, the second or third slide up here, um, slide nine. I feel better about the capital we've deployed in Japan than Taiwan. I, I think if we contrast Mr. Buffett's approach, which is completely agnostic to region and totally focused on preservation of capital first and growth of it, with the typical organization of human capital within the investment industry, uh, it's we can learn a lot from that. And and I you know I. I stand here as someone who was a China bull in 1994. I, I was all in on the idea that we're going to invest in China and all be happy together. Uh, the, the team that I worked with was led by Wei Jin Shan, who went on to, to, to great fame, um, leading um, private investment in China and, and so on. But what I saw early in my career and continue to see is something I think a lot of outsiders don't appreciate, which is that for every China allocation that happened, just because of the way that the, our crazy industry works, somebody had to kill a Japan guy, and it was usually a guy. I mean, you, you told this story. What was the, the allocation to Japan and the MSCI when you started? Uh, when I started at GMO, I had to run around the country defending our zero weight. It was 68%. Those were international portfolios. Benchmark was IFA. No one had ever heard of EM, generally. So speaking. call it 50% of ACWI. It was 45% of the world index. And it's now at, five. At that time. And it's gone from 45 to five. And for most yeah. so called elite institutions, they're underweight that five. And to the extent they have that five, it is almost exclusively in private equity or activist strategies, which are designed explicitly to throw out Japanese managers and replace them with financial engineers. And so that dynamic, um, I think, really influences the way people think that the, the model, if you will, the capital allocation model, in, in ways that are unfortunate. Because I think the real way to consider Japan is in the way that I, the Defense Department increasingly is, which is it's NATO plus. If you look at the way everyone outside the investment industry looks at these groupings, it's where can you invest capital and not have it taken away from you, even yeah. if the companies are great. Mm -hmm. But our industry is structured in a manner where people lump Japan into Asia. That's right. right. So what's your Asia weight? <laughs> as if Japan and China should be regarded as both apples or both oranges. 
when, as I like to say, one's an apple and one's an aardvark. That right? is exactly right. And, yeah. I, and I think that is an impediment to many people in our industry, whether it's the buy side, the sell side, consultants, from taking the approach that Mr. Buffett has taken, which is completely unconstrained by benchmarks, but very focused on an preservation and, and, and return of capital. Uh, and, and Frank's comment earlier simply reflects the reality that no one in a position of authority today is there because they've been long Japan. They are all there because they've been long China, private equity, or public equity in, in some form or fashion. Um, there's a, obviously there's the tech part, but even the tech piece is, is very much tied to China, at least in the eyes of the capital allocators. Now, if you talk to manufacturers, there's a very different feeling. 37% of the Boeing airframe is made in Japan. And the iPhone, the critical pieces are all made in Japanese companies. Tesla make, it can't be made without a FANUC uh, robot. So our industry, I think, has really become disconnected from the way the world works. And perhaps that's an opportunity um, as, as things change. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Let me pick up on the thread of manufacturing because when I said at the outset of the conversation, you you were born and raised in Tennessee. Yeah. You're now living back in Nashville. Uh, and there's been a very interesting, I put it on the outline, as you may have seen, there's been an interesting tale to be told about the presence um, and the activities of Japan domiciled companies manufacturing in the southeastern United States in general and in Tennessee in particular. Talk to us about that and what lessons can we draw from that in our role as global allocators of capital and potentially in that capacity investors in Japanese companies? Yeah, um, there's a slide number 26 which, which talks a little bit about this, but I, and maybe while we talk we can switch between 26 and 27 um, because they're both a, uh, they're both connected. And, and I'm going to start this, this little piece with a quote from Andy Grove um, about industrial policy and manufacturing, which I think is going to hopefully tie this together. And this is what Andy Grove said in 2010, and he's very much on my mind because um, Gordon Moore just died last month, and, and of course they were critical in forming Intel in, in so many different ways. Grove, an immigrant, um, uh, Moore, a native Californian, their good friend uh, Les Videz, who became my friend, also a Hungarian immigrant, kind of the best of what America does, bringing all these different talents together to make things. And, and here's what Grove said about the, the responsibility of corporate leaders. And he was talking about how, he said, the first task in America is to rebuild our industrial commons. We should develop a system of financial incentives to, and deposit in the coffers of what we might call the scaling bank of the U.S. and make these sums available to companies that will scale their American operations. Such a system would be a daily reminder that while pursuing our company goals, 
All of us in business have a responsibility to maintain the industrial base on which we depend and the society whose adaptability and stability we may have taken for granted. So, you know, hold that quote 2010 in your mind and look at what's happened to manufacturing employment and capability in the U.S. And you can't open a paper today without seeing how um, the drive for efficiency driven by financial engineers has crippled our ability to to make things that we need, whether they're for defense or, or common use. In contrast, you know, over this 20-year period or so, Japanese companies have created a million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. A lot of those are centered in the southeast. Uh, when, I, when I grew up in, in Memphis, Benihana was the only Japanese business <laughs> that we knew. And um, when I moved back to Nashville a couple of years ago, I was driving in East Tennessee and I saw a, almost a hand-lettered sign that said Denso hiring forklift drivers $25 an hour. And Denso, of course, is Japan's largest um, auto parts supplier, a very close partner of, of, um, of Toyota and a company that, with many other Japanese companies under the leadership of Lamar Alexander, established bases in the U.S. just as I was going to Japan. And so I've come back 30 years later and we have this enormous civil society that's been created around the skill that are required for manufacturing and all the wonderful things that happen to a community when you invest. In contrast, U.S. companies have shipped five million manufacturing jobs overseas, mostly to China. And my you know, as we look at reshoring, as we look at what it takes to actually make things that we need in a way that, that, that supports our communities and our nation, Japan's actually done a, us an enormous favor. And I think that when we step back at the asset allocation world and we look at our elite universities who regard Japanese managers with, with apathy bordering on contempt, I think we really need to to look at what these companies have done for us, and, and you know, my, my belief is, if you want to, if you believe in the resurgence of American manufacturing, invest in Japanese companies. If you believe in the primacy of China, invest in U.S. private equity because that's where they've sent the jobs. Yeah, I mean, you said earlier, kind of jokingly, the China guy had to kill the Japan guy to get the capital, right, and the backing. And I think that's been largely true in, in academia in the United States over the, as both a trustee of a college and my capacity there and having gone through a pretty fancy business school where all we heard about was Japan, and I think later on all you heard about, until quite recently, was, was China, if you went through that institution. Uh, it's, and one has to wonder, is the pendulum now swinging decisively toward Japan and its role, as I said in the outline, borrowing language from you of make, protect, and teach, make meaning manufacturing both in Japan and in other parts of the world, including Tennessee, yeah. protect its growing importance in our defense supply chain and teaches what, what can Japan teach us. Um, so let's come back to that, the yeah. teaching role, and explore a little bit further because I still think, Andrew, I don't think I know this, right, through multiple conversations. There's this sense that, oh, Buffett's in Japan now. I'll wait for the evidence to roll in that Japanese companies have reformed and then I'll put some capital in behind Buffett's, right? I'm, I'm going to wait for the evidence to roll in. I think you and I would assert the evidence has been available for years. The problem is, of course, that, you know, it, you can say this price drive narrative or this narrative drive price, yeah. right? 
And narrative drives price. Excuse me, I misspoke. Price drives narrative. And so it, it takes a resurgence of Japanese equity prices for people to start to reorient their thinking about Japan. But I want you to explore that a little bit further. And I actually want you to do so, if you don't mind, because you mentioned more in Grove and Intel and Les Vidas. Yeah. They had a very distinctive approach to a topic that I think about all the time, which is the, the prudent management of cash on one's balance sheet. So I, I threw a lot at you right there, yeah. but see if you can pick up those threads and go in whatever direction you'd like. Well, I mean, I, gosh, we just, we're just we're all on this journey of learning. And, and I came in, like everybody else, thinking that we had a lot to teach Japanese companies about how to run their businesses. And it was self-evident that they were ignorant because they had all this cash on their balance sheet. And I had, well, I didn't have an MBA. I had the subway version of an MBA. I, I, they had business school teachers come and teach those of us with history BAs, uh, finance classes while I was at J.P. Morgan. JP, so I was, yeah. I was all ready. I, I would lecture Japanese companies on the inefficiency of their balance sheet. I remember giving a presentation to an insurance company about why they should be more like AIG. This was, would have been about 2007. So You're at Southeast. I was at, yes, yeah. I apologize. Yeah. So about to leave. Actually. About to leave. Yeah. But as we went through COVID, all these Japanese companies that we, we were assessing, they, had, they were not worried because they, they had the financial resources not only to, to survive that period of no revenues, but also to continue to invest. And as we looked at U.S. companies, including, sadly, Intel, which at the time was run by a GE finance guy, U.S. companies obviously needed to be bailed out because they were too levered. They did not have the sort of resiliency that was required to deal with the unexpected. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to get to know Les Vidas um, while living in Sonoma, California, where he had retired but became, was very active as a philanthropist. And Les was the fourth employee of Intel. He's the guy who created the Moss Semiconductor, but he also headed Intel Capital. And um, I asked him, I said, how is Sorry it? to interrupt, but we should explain it. the venture arm of Intel. The venture arm of Intel, yeah. that's right. So he was both an engineer and an investor. And he coined what I call the Videz rule, which is it's easier to become, to teach an engineer finance than it is to teach a finance or financier <laughs> engineering. That's for sure. And, um, and I asked him, I said, why is it that Japanese companies have these strong balance sheets and Intel today is capital constrained? And why is it that when you and Gordon Moore and Andy Grove were running Intel, your balance sheets looked like the Japanese companies today? And he wrote back to me, um, he said, I don't know how to operate a company with the kind of leverage that some do. At times, it feels like they're building a house of cards. If Japanese companies operate with more cash on hand, more power to them, it just feels intuitively obvious that they are more shockproof than the highly leveraged ones. The old school wasn't that bad. We were never limited by cash, just by our ability to create growth. We have this view that the way that U.S. companies optimize their balance sheets is the right way and has always been the right way. And I guess the thing that I've learned most from Japanese companies and the way they're operating today is not that it's uniquely Japanese to be that way, 
but that there have been many times in American history where America's best companies were managed that way. They're mm -hmm. managed for what we like to talk about durability and fecundity, this long-term ability to sustain and grow as opposed to, um, to optimize. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that shows up in, in the way Intel is run today, interestingly, the first thing that Pat Gelsinger, who is an engineer and a protege of Les Vidas, did when he took over as CEO after a major battle in the boardroom was to stop buybacks and start conserving cash for what has become a, a literally worldwide battle for semiconductor manufacturing mm -hmm. capacity. A, and and you know, if you look at the guy who lost that battle for Intel's leadership, he now works for a private equity company that, in my opinion, has, has materially damaged the company that he runs, which is owned by private equity in mm -hmm. Japan. So. I want to come back to private equity before we wrap up. But before I do so, I, w I would be remiss, and I think mem some members of our audience would be upset if I didn't ask you to talk about the Bank of Japan, quantitative easing, easy money. Um, let's go all the way back to the pricking of the bubble. Uh, you know, the, look at the Nikkei index. It peaked at the last business day of 1989. But the, the head of the BOJ at the time had a certain view of central banking, of, of the price of money, yeah. and of the impact that easy money was having on his society. So start there, Andrew, and bring us right up to the present with whatever views you want to serve up about that constellation of issues, the bank, quantitative easing, easy money, and liquidity. Well, I've... I've I've consumed some of your and Keith's comments on, on central banking, and I guess just a short, short version is I agree. I think the way that we're operating our central banks today is corrosive of civil liberty, and it creates this, this um, divide between the haves and the have-nots, and it is um, that it's incorrect to apply what Jim, our mutual friend Jim Grant calls the PhD standard to monetary policy. What I think is interesting is that Japan is typically painted as the villain for having been easiest for the longest. But that in fact is not the case. Um, you know, Japanese interest rates were raised with the explicit purpose of, pu of, of puncturing the bubble. And it wasn't based on some by Fed. Mi by Mieno. By Mieno, a guy named Mr. Mieno. Yeah. And there's a terrific article, a, a profile of him written in 1993 um, in the Wall Street Journal. It's called Yen Master, Japan's Central Banker um, Starts to Win Praise for Saving Its Soul. And, and, uh, and he speaks very clearly to the ethical and moral issues that I think all of us talk about but you rarely hear today from the Fed governors or from the Bank of Japan today or from the ECB. And he explained why he raised rates to pop the bubble. And he said that Japan's bubble, this is, this is this, the head of the Bank of Japan, our high asset prices, our bubble, undermine the stability and soundness of our society by weakening the ethos of labor, the, nation, the notion of working by the sweat of your brow. It hastened the decline in morals and fostered inequalities in the dis distribution of wealth. Um, you know, rising asset prices divided society into two camps, the haves and the have-nots. 
and, and I would submit that all of the good things that have happened in Japanese companies over the ensuing 30 years or so, the things that have finally attracted and magnetized, to use your word, Berkshire's capital, are a result of that decision. And I think if you took the contrary, if you took the view of Bernanke and Yellen and Powell that we need to provide asset price levitation at all costs, and you think about what that would have meant if Japan had kept doing that, you would have had none of the manufacturing renaissance that we actually have had here. Um, and so it's, it's, it's in spite of the recent Bank of Japan moves, not because of them, that Japan, I think, is so attracted to long-term investors. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long-and-short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, that's a really powerful point. That's not consensus opinion by any means. No, it's not. Yeah. I recognize that. Yeah. Um, let's turn to sort of, as I called it in the outline, the, the business of managing other people's money. Because I, I do know you have some strongly held views about that, too. Walk us through whatever aspects of your career, starting whenever you want, um, that shed light on your evolving views about the business of managing other people's money, starting with the most central element of it all, which is the fee structure, which has an, a curious historical origin that I know you've thought about. Yes, well, um, you know, for old Saturday Night Live fans like me, Money management has been very good to me. Like baseball has been was very good. It's been very good to me. Very good. And and I and it's really unfair. You know, and and for my sins, um, after you know, my advice to young people who are trying to get in money management is always the same, which is be a welder. We need more welders than we need money managers. Mm -hmm. And of course, my daughter's working as a money manager this summer, so that's that's what I get. Um, Charlie Ellis has written eloquently about the business of money management and how we have evolved into this fee per as asset fee structure. And I think that's really the root of all evils, although I've, I've benefited from it greatly. Um, I love the model that you guys have at Hedgeye here, which is, I think, more true to the original model of providing advice in a fiduciary capacity with an, with an eye towards stewardship, with, uh, towards preservation of capital and, and force, first doing no harm. Um, I think the greatest sin that has been foisted upon us by this, what my partner John Buford calls the financial friction industry, is this idea that any of us who are moving money around create value. We don't. And the fee structures create so much wealth for the people who are managing those assets that um, they're almost forced to act contrary to their fiduciary responsibility, mm -hmm. mainly through growing their asset base. And, and I think the most extreme version we're seeing, unfortunately, relates back to China, where you look at where Jamie Dimon, where Larry Fink are focused, it is exclusively on managing money in China. And it is 
um, I think just an outgrowth of, of this disconnect between the financial money management business and finance properly defined, which is a subordinate role to support society and manufacturing and services and those other things. And I think Japan, in a strange way, almost by accident, by popping its bubble, has, done, has gotten closer to that model and, and in, in many ways provided a path for us. It's like, hey, there is a world in which the finance guys don't call all the shots and it can work. <laughs> That's the Les Vedez thing. It's not that hard. All this stuff is really not that hard. Yeah, it's hard to, for me to think about Larry Fink without thinking about ESG. It's hard for me to think about ESG in relation to the model that you just critiqued, which is asset-based fees, right, which create, obviously, tautologically, a very powerful incentive to do what? Grow the asset base. Right? So why do I mention all that? I do want you to take a minute or two, or more if you prefer, to talk about what's going on at GPIF. Yeah. Because I think among the elements of my own evolving case for why should I pay attention in my continuous OODA loop, it's not been 50 years like Buffett's, but my own OODA loop on Japan goes back more than 30 years to my time at GMO. And I'm increasingly focused on what GPIF is doing as the potential source, Andrew, might even argue that it's a current source of a tailwind for investors in Japanese companies. But I'd rather have you explain why that might be the case than have me do so. Well, if we can put up first the, the chart on 28, page 28, source of social problems. And you mentioned a few things there starting with ESG and also with, and then I was, t I was going on a rant about financialization. Um, I think it's important to have in the background um, this wonderful chart that our friend Jesper put together. And the bottom line is that Japan is the leader in all the things that are, that are the ends of the best intentioned ESG investment strategies. And when I say the best intention, I mean the people who are sincerely trying to accomplish good things, not those who are simply using the latest fad to raise fees. Um, presumably, we're trying to have a better, more functioning uh, society that works better for, for everyone. And, and Japan, in spite of not having an ESG movement, does better than, far better than the U.S. on, on all of these metrics. And, and, and that's true at the company level. We've got, whether it's energy efficiency, whether it's um, ratio of CEO pay to median employee, wealth distribution, all those things Japan does a good job of. How does GPIF play into that? How does that connect to Buffett? Uh, and you should explain what GPIF is. So the GPIF is, is, not a, everybody is a government's pension investment fund. And for many years, early in my career, the portion of Japanese um, retirement liabilities that were due, that were the government liabilities, were actually commingled with company portion pension plans. It's as, as, as if the Social Security Fund were together with Boeing's pension plan, and Boeing was in charge of managing all that. Well, in the early tw 2000s, the government took all that back. It was part of an enormous mulligan make whole. Every, the liabilities were cut and everybody took a hit. Retirees took a hit. Interest rate ex, uh, 
expectation, return expectations were all lowered, mm -hmm. and this pool of government money was put together and managed professionally. But when I say professionally, it was not managed by fee-seeking yes. money managers. It was managed by people like Mr. Professor Ito, who now is teaching down the road at, at Columbia, and they looked at their assets and their liabilities. Japan had a, a rapidly um, declining demographic profile, and they realized we're going to have to start. This is going to have to start. We have to start paying our bills. Yeah, exactly. And they totally changed their focus because they were so large. They're the largest, and it's something like two trillion dollars right now. They focused on really three things: broad governance reforms, which set very um, clear but long-term objectives for companies in terms of their um, management profile and return on invested capital. Just two very big things, not particular but general. If you're not independently managed and if you're not increasing your returns on capital to, our, to what we have to do to, to pay our liabilities, we're going to vote against you. Um, and then the third thing they did was pay low, well, and they shifted to equities. So they've, yeah. and they've, they are the biggest winner in this huge increase in Japanese earnings profile. And, and Mr. Ito wrote me, he said, you know, when I, when I started in 2012, two thirds of the portfolio was in JGBs and only 25%, and, and now it's only 25% bonds. At the beginning of the, um, Ten years ago, interest rates from investments in JGBs accounted for 60% of our income. Last year, dividends from companies made up 60%. The biggest shareholder in Japan has come to the Japanese companies and said, you guys need to start generating capital and you need to pay it to us. And that has catalyzed all the things that were, uh, helped catalyze yeah. all the things we're talking about. But they've done it without the help of Dan Loeb, without the help of Bill Ackman, without mm -hmm generating all this animosity and, and um, that, that so often comes with activism. I think they've acted as stewards and they've done it, you know, they, they talked about how excited they were that they could share with their clients or with their investment managers um, a big piece of their 25% return, and this was on, on one year. And they said our fees have, have climbed to the first time to four basis points. <laughs> Economies of scale. Economies of scale. <laughs> and I think if that's also the secret to Buffett's success. Yeah. There is no um, carry, there's no pressure to generate fees. There is a pressure over a long period of time to generate cash and fecundity. And, and I, th I think we can learn from that too. Yeah. Um, reasonable return profile geared towards the actual needs of the institution, which differ depending on individual and so on, and then a humility about what we can do as investment managers, but respect for what the companies are doing and, and, and giving them brain to do it. I mean, the GPF portfolio approach is almost identical to Berkshire's and radically different from that that I see at most endowed institutions. So let's finish with that. We have like two minutes to go, and I want any closing observations you have about the behavioral tendencies of major allocators. Because to be totally frank with our worldwide audience, I mean, the new service I'm heading here is designed to give them an edge against 
the thundering herd that I now want to hear you critique in our remaining two minutes. Well, and this yeah. is where I get to uh, give, give you a tip of the hat. Maybe we can go to slide 24 because it has a baseball picture, which I know you love, um, and I do too. You know, you, I, I've seen you do this. Um, the problem for most of these institutions is that they're, geared, they're judged against their peers. Mm -hmm. And that means that when everyone's doing the same thing, there's almost no benefit to stepping outside. Um, you know, in regards to Japan, I've seen you wait for years and then with the capital that you had on hand, the cash, um, after the earthquake came, you were able to double down in Japan. Um, it was a combination of having a clear investment philosophy and having the willingness and the patience to stand outside. And I, and I guess the one thing that I've learned, uh, both from, from Buffett and from you, from my partner John Buford, is um, how valuable it is to be able to do nothing in confidence without confusing doing nothing with not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like any great athletes being able to, to be resilient and to respond to opportunities. And I think, unfortunately, um, as I'm seeing in Japan, you know, the last year, three weeks ago, whether it's the Arizona conference or the JP or the, the Value Investing Conference in London, Japan's not on the agenda. People aren't looking because it's too painful. They're too focused on other stuff to miss the opportunity that that obviously Buffett seized and that you've seized in the past too. Well, we're paying careful attention. We will continue to do so. I'm really grateful that you made a special trip up here just to do this today, and I'll extend an invitation to come back. We'll wait for um, trends to evolve a bit, and then we'll get you back, Andrew, and we'll do a fresh appraisal of it in our endless OODA loop of what's going on, not just about in Japan, but in the rest of the world. But thank you very much for being Perfect. here. Perfect. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.